Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 255, and I had a conversation with Dr. Max Frieder. He is the executive director and co-founder of Artolution. He is a community-based public art educator and a global citizen and humanitarian. What he does, he and his group go into refugee camps, war-torn places, places where there's been great upheaval and disaster, and helps uh, heal through art by educating how art can help uh, provide a voice to the voiceless uh, to alleviate pain and suffering through beauty. And I really have great respect for, for Max and what he has done. It's an incredible program. He's been to more than 26 countries and I'm please 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 make sure to go to the links page because I'm going to link to photographs of some of these places that he's been to and what the communities have done with the murals that they create it's extraordinary and beautiful and uh, I, I can't wait for you to see the work there'll be links of course on heyhumanpodcast.com to a bunch of stuff about Max and Artolution and and everything that he's doing uh, as a member of the world. It's really great stuff. Uh, I actually uh, just interviewed him, but because of the fire that swept through the refugee camp in Bangladesh, um, and they need help with rebuilding and finding people and um, all the things that happen when disaster strikes, uh, they're looking to raise some money up. So I bumped... Max's episode to the front of the queue because it's my hope that those of you listening, some of you might be able to uh, help out and donate and there'll be a donation spot on the links page and also through artolution.org if you want to go directly there. Uh, so yeah, this is a very powerful conversation. Um, I, I got off the Zoom with Max and it took me a minute to collect my thoughts and and my feelings. And it's just, yeah, I said this to him during the interview that I'm, it's good to know that people like this exist in the world. Um, and I just, I, I was quite moved by the work and the art and the beauty of, of humans when uh, there's so much ugliness abounding that, that there's still so much beauty as well. So anyway, I could wax poetic all day long, but that's that's the vibe. <laughs> that's the vibe. And I'm really uh, looking forward to you hearing this episode. Usual stuff, Hey Human Podcast can be found on social media under Facebook and Instagram. And you can find me personally under Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook under Susan Ruthism. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. As I mentioned before, there's a links page on the website that will lead you to all things guest-related. So every guest that's on the show has a pile of links that will take you to them and their work and the things they think about and what we've discussed. Definitely check that out. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. It's super helpful. It pushes it up in the algorithms, you know, that whole AI thing. And uh, I appreciate it greatly. If you can't imagine your life without a Hey Human t-shirt or pencil box or a piece of artwork that I've created, check out the store on heyhumanpodcast.com and go get your Hey Human merch. 
If you'd like to sign up for the mailing list, go to susanruth.com. You can do so there. I know it's too different, but it's all convoluted. What are you going to do? I have a, a life that goes in many directions, so I have to have a couple websites to carry that out. So yeah, sign up for the mailing list at susanruth.com. If you like music, check out Susan Ruth on iTunes or Spotify. And I think that's about it. That's all the that's all the news that's fit to print. I just watched a great movie called The Highwaymen on Netflix. It came out a couple of years ago. It stars Woody Harrelson and um, Kevin Costner. It's fantastic. I recommend it a lot. Okay, uh, enough about all that. Let's get into this. Thanks for listening. Be well, be kind, stay safe. And here we go. Dr. Max Frieder, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you so much. Thank you for hey being human. here. It's, it's so good to be here. Yeah. And um, <laughs> hey, hey, you human and hey to all the humans in the world who are listening to this. Uh, before we dig into what you do, I'd like to know who you are. So where did you start? your life? What, what was uh, your childhood and upbringing? Sure. Uh, yeah. So I was born uh, in Denver, Colorado. Um, that's where I'm from. Uh, and I uh, kind of came out of the womb with a paintbrush in my hands, I would say. Um, and so uh, I've been <laughs> painting since I was a child. Um, and I, I was lucky enough, you know, I kind of went through life really following on my passion. And um, I was lucky enough that I got to uh, go to RISD, to the Rhode Island School of Design uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. And when I was there, I, uh, I really, really developed a strong focus on working with communities. And what is it like working with communities? How do we make murals together? How do we do public art uh, in a way that really is rooted on children telling their stories? And so I had the opportunity to do a study abroad program in New Zealand, where I started painting murals with Maori communities, with the indigenous communities there, and uh, worked a lot in Latin America, being able to do programs um, with different indigenous communities, and really, you know, being able to leave my time uh, in my undergraduate and uh, really knowing what I wanted to focus on. And so I was able to kind of leave that uh, that work and uh, and actually start up in. in almost immediately and work internationally. So, um, which I feel very lucky to be able to get to do, um, as you could imagine. As a little kid, were you drawn to see that, that it, we are in a global community? I mean, that's sometimes rare for a child to really have an understanding of the world as being small instead of large. Yeah, you know, I kind of, I, I guess the way I would phrase it is I viewed art to be imbued with life. Like art, art and life go hand in hand. So when I say that, I mean, every element of life has drawing and painting and sculpting and poetry embedded into it. So rather than the idea that like art and life are separate, it's that art and life are intrinsically connected. And so, for example, you know, for me, I, you know, when I, for, when I was a kid drawing, for example, when I would watch a movie or TV, I could never watch a TV without drawing. I could never like go to a sports a sporting event without drawing. So my perspective on how the world worked was based through a sketchbook. And I think that's, that's a really important way of seeing how decisions are made, how systems functioning, how as a child, our cognitive development functions, you know, when, when you embed creativity into everything, you start to realize that expression and creativity are a, a part of the fabric of life. And I think that's, that was something that was very important for a very young age. So that was your language, really, exactly. more than anything else? I would say so, yeah. How did you step into the realm of understanding how art and trauma intersect for healing? Oh, wow. Um, that's a great question. 
And one of the ways is, I, you know, I had this question that was like burning in my brain for a really long time. And it was, what is the ultimate potential of what the arts can accomplish? Like, like at its best, when art is at its best, what can it accomplish? And, you know, initially I was, you know, making lots of paintings and drawings of my own. And, you know, I, I found that sometimes these paintings, I'd work really hard on them and then they'd be in my parents' basement. Right, and that's where they would go and live. And it became this frustration of mine of thinking, you know, how can it deal with trauma? How can we start to deal with like the pain of the world and the suffering of the world? And what can art actually do to make that happen? And so once I, I kind of graduated from my undergraduate, I, I got to work a lot in the Middle East. I was working in Israel and Palestine uh, during the first and the second Gaza wars. I did a lot of programs working in the Syrian refugee camps with my co-founder and partner, Joel Bergner um, of, of our organization, Artolution. And, and I got to spend also a lot of time in Austra Australasia, working in Australia and New Zealand. Um, uh, working with indigenous communities. And what I started to see was that, you know, so much of the time we'd come, we'd do these really exciting projects uh, with people who've been through serious trauma, but were also most inspiring and resilient and kind of just incredible um, people you could ever imagine. And the number one question they would always ask was, when are you coming back? And that's the wrong question. The right question is, how can we do this for ourselves? How can we create a system of using the arts to deal with our own trauma? So this was kind of the seedling of seeing people kind of working their way through that trauma of that transformation of going from being a survivor or a victim to becoming a survivor, a survivor to becoming an agent of social change, and then becoming an agent of social change to teaching others how to become agents of social change, right? So when we look at, 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 that, at that kind of like those layers, those levels of different kinds of impact that can be made, I start to realize that art can make an impact at every one of those levels and that, and that art can actually become a catalyst. So it's more than just arts being an ends in themselves, that art actually has, has the potential to, to lead to that type of transfer, transformational potential that maybe nothing else in the world can do. And so, so seeing that potential and seeing people who've been through, you know, gang violence, people who've been through physical and sexual based violence, you know, who are women, uh, being able to, 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 to see education and, you know, you know, some of the different types of, um, of problems that people don't have access to and saying, wow, maybe art can discuss it in a way that makes us feel better about ourselves, that makes us realize our worth and our identity. And like being able to create those systems and build those bridges, it, it almost became almost a responsibility. It felt like it was my responsibility to do it because so many of these people, they have the talent, they have the passion and the drive, they just don't have the resources. And so the question is, how do we build those bridges to build those resources to the right places? And, and that's what we've been working towards for the last 12 years. It's interesting because stepping into these communities and these cultures where I, I would think oral traditions are the thing. And then finding the people that are not only understanding of the oral tradition, but have somehow parlayed that into a visual realm. And then to find those people, is, was it like a needle in a haystack when you began? Or did we go, oh, talk to that person <laughs> as soon as you walked into a village or a community? Um, that's a great question. And the reality is, is it, it ranges according to the context we work in. So if we're working in the South Sudanese refugee community in Uganda, it's going to be a very different situation than the Rohingya community, which is different than the Syrian community, which is different than the displaced Venezuelan and internally displaced people of Colombia. They're all different contexts and all have to be treated as their own context. I think that's really important. So when we're looking for artists, a lot of it is kind of based on what are their pre-existing experiences, which is huge, but also what is the pre-existing knowledge and understanding of the art. So for example, 
at its best, I think Uganda is a phenomenal example where we were working with UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, and we basically said, we need to find artists. We're looking for teaching artists. And, and yes, we want people who are artists, but we want people who are artists who want to make a social impact. We want people who care about communities, who care about children, who are not just artists for themselves, but want to work with others, right? And that's a very specific type of an artist. It's a socially engaged artist. It's a teaching artist, somebody who actually really cares about the social good of their community. So what we did is we asked that. So what they did is they went to every school and they asked every teacher within the refugee community and said, uh, are there any teachers who have specific inclinations towards arts? Do, is there anybody who's a teacher who is an artist? And they found a team. So they actually built the team for us. We did interviews. They ended up coming together and it was really well organized, like a well-oiled machine. So that's at its best what's possible. Uh, the Rohingya situation is the exact opposite. I went there and I, and I started asking everybody that I met, do you know any artists? And people said, there are no artists here because artists got killed in Myanmar and there are no artists. Now, that's not to say they're not artistic traditions. The Rohingya have a very strong artistic tradition of craftsmanship, of embroidery, of, uh, of wood carving, of being able to have folkloric songs. But I wasn't asking for, you know, folkloric um, tradesmen. You know, I wasn't looking for embroidery uh, for, for women who do embroidery. I specifically was asking for artists who, who were able to do murals, right? I was looking for art educators. And that specific title really didn't exist within the Rohingya community. And so I was literally knocking on every door that I could for literally two weeks trying to find artists. And lo and behold, after looking for weeks, there's this one um, guy who had kind of heard about this crazy American who was trying to find uh, trying to find a, a team of artists to be able to build. And he came over and he said, well, I don't, his name was Mohammed Noor. And he said, well, I don't really know if I'm an artist. I always loved art. I always dreamed of being an artist. But when I was in Myanmar, my, my mother always told me that I actually um, could never become an artist because all artists would get killed because uh, because they were considered a risk by the Myanmar military. And so and so he said, you know, I would make drawings in the hiding of my own home on scraps of trash using pieces of burnt wood. And, and he said, you know, I, I then I then fled, you know, after his uncle was killed and there was a lot of um, his village was burned and he fled. And when he was when he was running. He actually would dig holes in the ground, cover himself with dirt, and then during the daytime, he would run. Actually, during the nighttime, he would run. During the daytime, he would hide. They ended up getting to the Naf River, which divides Bangladesh from Myanmar, and actually made a raft, floated across. And when he got there and got into kind of these um, you know, temporary structures, he they didn't really have enough food to live. And so he started looking around for a job, and he ended up hearing about this crazy American looking for artists, and he came and he found me. We started working together, and he ended up being just the most inspiring, inspiring guy. And what he ended up telling me is, isn't it funny, you know, isn't it crazy that I had to lose everything that I owned? We had to lose our family. I had to lose my home. We had to lose everything we owned. And now I'm able to actually pursue my dream. Now I'm actually to be able to become an artist and a professional artist, and I'm able to make a statement for my community. And you look at that and you realize that it's kind of like the phoenix being reborn from the ashes. And that's actually really what I wrote my dissertation on um, from, from my doctoral work at Teachers College at Columbia. I did over three years of research of collecting literally hundreds of pages of testimonials, interviews, focus groups, really saying, what is it? what do we need to make a sustainable model of social change that is locally led? And is that, is that really able to be supported in our long-term? What are their needs? What are their dreams? And maybe most importantly, how can they become the makers of their own history? And so I would highly recommend uh, checking it out. Uh, you can find it online. It's called the Rohingya Artolution, um, teaching locally led, community-based public art educators in the largest refugee camp in history. Um, so I, I would recommend checking it out. But it's exactly that question you asked, Susan, and, um, and them being able to answer for themselves.
Firstly, I love that your dissertation, that all dissertations are online. I actually, I think that's so cool. And anyone listening, I encourage you to go seek out people's dissertations because they do all this work. There's all this passion. And generally, the topics are really interesting. So definitely, that that's something, it's a good reminder of that. <laughs> uh, when you work with the muralists, so you're doing all sorts of things with those murals. Firstly, I think it's a, a vehicle to help with the trauma. Secondly, there's an education aspect, right? You're teaching people about hygiene and health and safety and vaccination and, uh, and uh, sex protection and all this kind of stuff. Was that a tricky sell, especially white guy coming in too? you know, an American nonetheless, where I'm sure that comes with its own uh, heavy suitcase full of what people think that means. How did you great, go about that? That's a great question. So the reality is, and especially as an outsider coming in, as someone who looks very different from the people who are there um, in any of these contexts, the number one most yeah. important thing is that yeah. it's not about me. It's not about us coming in. It's about the local artists having their own tools to lead their own programs. That is that is 100% what this is about. And so for me coming in, people really believe in our work and trust our work because it's not about some foreign person coming in, doing a one-time program and leaving. If you do that, you know, there's a whole idea of a do no harm policy. You can actually create more problems than good by doing that. And so, and so for us, the fact that it's always rooted in the communities, that it is their own community who's leading their own programs, and that I'm there to plant the seed, right? Or my partner is there to plant the seed, but that it is their seed and it is their cultivation of that seed into a tree. And the way that tree grows is going to be their own tree and it's going to turn into their own forest, which has its own characteristics, its own identity and its own feelings. And I think that's really important to consider, number one. Number two, I think, you know, you're, you're asking about, okay, how do you create trust, right? I mean, you can't just come in and assume there's going to be trust. We always work with trusted local partners, right? So we work with small local grassroots organizations, working with other partners like like UNICEF or UNHCR, or the Red Cross, who's been in the communities for sometimes many decades. And so for us, we don't come in as an outside organization and just start. We, we plan sometimes for many months before we would come in to make sure that it's well supported, that it's trusted, and that we have that local buy-in. I also want to make it extremely clear that, you know, for us, um, you know, when you say, okay, so there's this foreign guy who comes in and this foreign white guy who comes in and do the work, totally valid. Um, one thing that's really important is to consider, well, how you work with the local imams? How are you working with the local majis, the local tribal leaders? How are you working with the local women and the model mothers who are there who are being, I say model mothers because it's a program we run with women who are leaders in their communities. And the answer is they need to be the ones who are making the decisions about what's discussed, right? You can't come in and say, this is what you need to talk about. That never works and it will never work. You have to come in and say, what are your needs? What are you assessing as your needs? And how can we help support the needs that you have within your own communities? Now, simultaneously, to be totally open and honest, you know, there are are many assessments that are done by big international actors, right? So UNICEF might do a study about domestic violence, and they know that gender-based violence is a substantial problem, let's say, in the Rohingya context. They know it, we know it, there's a lot of evidence, and there's a lot of research on this. Now, that doesn't mean that that's what the artists are going to talk about. It doesn't mean that's a difficult subject to discuss. It's not easy to talk about gender-based violence. It's not easy to talk about sexual violence or violence in the home. It's not easy to talk about that. So what we have to do is we actually provide trainings, not just for me, but actually our partners will help to train 
uh, when I say our partners, I mean UNICEF or the Red Cross will actually help to train our artists about how they have, let's say, mental health first aid. So they'll be able to talk about coping mechanisms. They'll be able to talk about healthy, healthy ways of dealing with sadness, depression, dealing with trauma, how to have healthy relationships within their families, um, about, you know, basic wash, sanitation, hygiene, washing of hands. You know, if, you're, if your child is sick, how do you take care of that child, dehydration, et cetera. Um, and so, so all of these things, they're, they're getting an education in these very tangible ways of making social change, but then they are deciding how to recontextualize that knowledge into a local format, into a format that these local imams will understand, that local children and women will understand. And that in the end, the, the, the key components are, are an amalgamation, a hybrid of the issues that are identified by the local communities and the issues that are pervasive amongst long-term assessment, right? Monitoring and evaluation about what the problems are. So if you put those two things together and then our artists then decide how to facilitate those dialogues, it's key that it ends up reflecting what those local needs are on an ongoing and a very deep-seated basis, I would say. Yeah, and I imagine it shifts. It shifts. You have to be prepared for totally. that as well. Yeah. Daily, on a day-to-day -day basis. What I find interesting as well is I... I bet you the kids, the, the the young ones, as they're seeing these things being facilitated and realizing that they they are empowered with a voice through this medium, that it, it I mean that when you're given an understanding that you have dominion over yourself and you have hope and you have a voice when all along there have been outside forces telling you you don't, so it's going to be so powerful. I couldn't agree more. And it's this idea, so much of the time, you know, children in many cultures around the world are not necessarily viewed to be the, the, equal, the equivalent of adults, right? That children are lower, lower within society, within uh, uh, especially civil society, and saying, actually, why can't children make their own decisions of the kind of environment they want to live, live in? You know, they need to be able to tell their own stories and establish what their priorities are. So, and, and what's been so fascinating, so we did a study, we did a, a program with um, Save the Children ended up growing into a program with UNICEF. And what we were doing that was so interesting is we were working in these different what are called child-friendly spaces. And what they did is they did an assessment where they were tracking attendance before one of our programs and then after one of our programs. And what they found was there was actually a substantial rise in attendance in that children felt that this was their center, that they had ownership, that they belonged there, that who they were mattered because they were able to paint their stories. This is my dog. This is my cow that I left in Myanmar. You know, this is you know, this is my mother who inspires me. This is my grandmother who passed away, right? They have that, 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 that relationship. Now, right now, if you may have been following the news, um, there was a massive devastating fire um, in Bangladesh in the Rohingya camps. There was over 10,000 homes that have been destroyed. 50,000 people have been displaced. Uh, a whole number of our artists had their homes and everything they own burned after already fleeing a genocide. So you can imagine it's many layers of traumatization and re-traumatization. Um, and it's just a devastating time right now. And so we're, we're right now providing both um, immediate resources to our artists for them to rebuild their homes and some of the basic necessities, um, as well as uh, food. If you can imagine, you know, there's been a lot of food ration cuts, which have been connected there as well. But then also equally as importantly, is providing immediate uh, uh, mental health uh, support for the children. You know, you have thousands of children who are uh, kind of wandering aimlessly. Unfortunately, there's many hundreds of folks who are missing. Um, and even some of our artists' families are unfortunately missing, you know. And so I say this because when you talk about creating that ownership, when everything's been taken from you, when you feel like you've lost everything, to have a way of reclaiming that, that ownership, that statement that you have meaning in the world and that who you are matters, 
um, it, it has deep seated mental implications, you know, the mental health implications, the wellness, it's not something to be taken lightly. Um, and, you know, for us, we consider, if you can imagine, there's actually a pyramid of what's called the mental health and psychosocial support, uh, well-being pyramid of uh, the UN uh, refugee agency, UNHCR. We are what's called the second category, which is being able to strengthen civil and familial um, uh, uh, well-being. So, so in other words, being able to make people resilient, be able to deal with the traumas that are happening to them so that they are able to help, uh, help, help the healing process of their own community, rather than needing outside people to come in and provide, let's say, um, you know, a, a clinician and a patient, being able to say that communities can help to provide this for themselves, in addition to very formalized mental health care, which is also equally as important, but we just need to know what our roles are when we're dealing with very traumatized and crisis contexts. I think back to that image uh, from the Vietnam War of the military and the, the, the woman with the flower in the barrel of the gun. And I think about the people that are committing the atrocities, moving through these villages and these spaces that, that your programs have, you know, and the, the community programs have beautified and the stories that are being told, the humanization of people that, that oppressors dehumanize on a daily basis. Have you come across or experienced the oppressor changing their mindset based on these images? Ooh, that is a great question, Susan. That is a, a very challenging question. Um, so to be honest, we work in what's usually a host community country. So for example, we are not working inside of Myanmar. We are working inside of Bangladesh, right? Where the refugees have been displaced too. Um, and so because of that, there's now, now don't get me wrong, there's a lot of conflicts between host communities and refugee communities, right? So an example is Syria and Jordan or South Sudan and Uganda or Bangladesh and Myanmar or Venezuela and Colombia, right? So, so for us, we're working in the places where the people fled to. Um, and so because of that, there's, there's a lot of what we call social cohesion and peace building work that's based on that exact same question. How do you work with oppressors? How do you work with people who may have um, committed uh, different types of, of, um, of, of dehumanization or even you know, violations of human rights? So a couple of answers to that question. The first answer is, I, I think, honestly, the number one people who commit atrocities or any kinds of trauma-related um, uh, actions are men, right? Men are usually those who are committing these types of violent acts. So one of the biggest things, whether it's, by the way, inside of refugee communities, whether it's within the host communities, or whether it's actually the oppressive societies themselves, like the Bashar al-Assad uh, you know, al regime in Syria, or the military junta the, um, in, in, in Myanmar, um, you know, the, the reality is, is that I think it's, it's so crucial to work with men. And to be able to work with adolescent boys, especially, and to have and to, for them to be taught by other men in their communities about how to treat women, about the ideas about gender equity, about healthy relationships in their homes, about being able to understand that it is not okay to hit a child, it is not okay to hit a woman, um, and it's not okay to use violence. And I think that's very important. We've seen actually some pretty substantial transformations within those specific programs that we've run. Um, when it comes to actual people who've kind of committed some of these atrocities. 
Um, we've had some experiences, and, and, and I can't go into details for privacy purposes, but we've worked with people who've worked with um, uh, kind of terrorist organizations or, or organizations that have uh, extremist groups, uh, ranging from folks who've been involved with Hezbollah or people who've been involved with Hamas or people who've been involved in, in groups like ARSA, which is one of the Rohingya um, kind of radical groups. And so there's radical groups all over the world. So one of the things we found is that you have to make being able to discuss difficult issues relatable, right? So you can't come in into a, into a community and be, say, your cultural traditions are wrong. You need to change everything you're doing. It, it doesn't work that way. You'll never get change. It has to be a little bit more of a nuanced process. You need local people to be advocating to their own communities about the ways that they need to change and how that's going to benefit their lives and their communities, right? I think that's number one, really important. Number two, if you see violence, like for example, you know, you might see a riot, you might see a case of domestic violence, you may see a, a case of, of, of child abuse. It's so important to know the correct protocols. So being able to report them to the correct authorities, being able to have a referral process, being able to have a child and family protection process. All of these things are very important as well. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, we've done work with, with people who are on two sides of a single war. And that's really important. So, for example, work that we've done with the Dinka and the Nuer communities are two different tribes within the South Sudan war, um, the, 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 the conflict happening there. And we've worked with both groups together and saying, you know, we have to find ways of what are the commonalities, what are the common things that we can relate about? And that's so important to focus on the, the commonalities rather than the differences. We did the same thing in Israel and Palestine, working, let's say, during the 2014 Gaza war, working with Israelis and Palestinians who both had their children killed by the other side. So we did a program where we actually were able to work with Palestinian mothers who bereaved that had their children um, who, who were killed in the conflict paint a mural on canvas. We rolled up that canvas, brought it to the other side and worked with um, mothers in Tel Aviv who had had their children killed and were able to work on the same canvas. And then we actually were able to get a permit to bring 120 Palestinians into Tel Aviv. They, they sat down in a circle with a group called the Parent Circle Families Forum and they discussed what their trauma was like and they related about that and we actually created another follow-up mural together which was then displayed at the United Nations building. So when you start talking talking about people who've been through this trauma, people who maybe have actually committed these atrocities or had them committed upon them. The reality is, is they need a healthy expression. If you don't provide those healthy outlets, it will come out in unhealthy ways. We know this. What we, do, what, what, what we don't know is what happens when you have these healthy outlets, then what are the long-term implications of this? So, so, so just a final analogy to answer your question. If you imagine there is a sea of pain and we are fighting for one droplet of healing, in that sea of pain. That one droplet can make ripples and those ripples can then spread. And when we look at this, you know, we realize we are one puzzle piece of a much larger type of a, a, a series of crises. And it seems so, uh, so daunting to try to deal with these. But if you look at that one droplet, it is worth, it is worth every, every single you know, ounce of care, it is worth fighting for. And we see that not because I'm saying it, but because our artists are saying this to us, right? And I think that's a very important distinction to what you're talking about. When you come into these environments, I, 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 clearly you're empathic. Besides being an artist, it's, a clear, it's clearly that you understand that you are part of the human web. So when you are stepping into a situation with like women who have been gang raped the, uh, over and over again, their children have been stolen from them, their husbands killed, their uncles killed, their fathers killed. And you, I imagine, have to serve it as a conduit for that pain until they're able to, to turn that pain into the art 
how how do you navigate that personally where do you where do you go in your heart and in your mind and your soul for that you know it's challenging it's not easy and no. and but that's why you go into this work if it were easy anybody would do it the, the reason you go into this work is because it's hard you know, you go into it because it's challenging and you know it's challenging and you go into it knowing you're going to deal with these things. One of the things that I found over the years, I've talked a lot about this to my partner, Joel, as well as to our artists, is, is that you have to prepare yourself, right? So it's not like something you just go in blind, you assume everything's going to be okay. You know, if that happens, you can deal with very serious culture shock. You yourself can get traumatized. You can deal with re-traumatization and you can actually, um, it, it can actually hurt the beneficiaries more than help them. Right. So, for example, if you go into a camp and you're not mentally prepared to deal with that and you start bursting out in tears, which I've, I've had happen with colleagues, um, it actually yeah. hurts the children more than helping. And so you have to be very aware of your own mental well-being going into these spaces. And I think I've worked with colleagues in, in UNHCR, UNFPA, or IOM with all these acronyms, all these giant you know, humanitarian organizations, um, and they work very hard. This is something, it's not like volunteers who come to try to do something good. They are professionals who work incredibly hard to make sure that they are in a mental space to be able to provide the most high quality services, aid, and development possible. Um, for me personally, to get a little more personal for a second, you know, for me, I before I go into a space, I have a period of preparation. Um, I get myself mentally, emotionally, spiritually prepared to go into a very difficult, traumatizing space. I know it's going to be hard. I'm under, I've done this for enough years. It's not going to be difficult. It's not going to be something easy. And you know that. So you go and you prepare yourself. Then when you are in the middle of these incredibly challenging circumstances, you have to have outlets. So for me, for example, every day I write. Right, I'm writing every day, going to and from the camps. I'm constantly keeping a diary I'm in, in my computer of writing. I'm always drawing. Um, I'm, I, I have a certain kind of breathing and meditation practice um, that I do every day while I'm there in, in country. Right, And then when I leave, you need to have a time of, of reflection. You need to give yourself the space to be able to say, okay, I just saw some really difficult stuff. You know, you're talking about a woman who was gang, ra gang raped. I've worked with women who've been through that, uh, for example, in Afghanistan, when I was working in, um, in the Greek refugee camps um, on the border of Turkey, uh, as well as in the French refugee camps and the Calais jungle refugee camp. And, you know, I had those experiences of hearing those stories. And, and you have to be there to continue to be a source of light, right? You are there to be somebody who's positive. If you're there and you absorb that darkness and can't be able to kind of be that candle amidst the darkness um it's gonna it, it 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 is not going to do good it can create more harm than good and i think that's really important to kind of consider um and so and so when when you're dealing with your own psychological social and emotional well-being you have to be able to take stock of your own welfare and you also need to be able to take stock of what does your welfare mean to those who you're serving so an example that i always like to give is probably one of the most powerful examples we had a big unfortunately there was a massive riot in the rohingya camps and they were actually um i'm not going to go into the details because it's a little bit too gruesome but they were attacking foreigners um because there was a rumor that foreigners were all uh, kidnapping children. And, and right alongside this, this triggered conflicts between the Rohingya and the Bengali community. And there was a lot of kind of racism that ended up happening. And I was sitting around in a circle and these people were in tears saying, you know, um, we're being attacked. You know, we, we fled a genocide. And now we're feeling racism. And by the way, we work very closely with Bangladeshi artists and Rohingya artists. And Bangladesh, I think, deserves deep, deep gratitude that they very well single-handedly saved 1.2 million people's lives on their own. And so I have, I think the world should be indebted to Bangladesh as a tiny country that's heavily overpopulated and in extreme poverty that they save the lives of, of over a million people and they deserve 
the most gratitude. The reason I say this is because I was in a circle with our artists and they were dealing with these very serious traumas, dealing with racism, also dealing extremely with their own trauma they've been through, you know, having, you know, watching their own family members get raped, you know, watching babies um, get thrown in the fire, these types of horrific things that we can't even fathom. And I said, you know, and instead of saying, okay, you know, uh, you know, trying to deal with this trauma on my own, I said, okay, if we're all sitting around in a circle and we're all dealing with some really hard stuff right now, right? Imagine that, let's put our hands in front of us. And actually, I, I started earlier. I said, you know, you guys look at me and you think I'm so different, right? I'm this foreigner who came from America. You know, I look totally different than you. I speak a diff totally different language, right? But the reality is my ancestors were refugees, yeah my ancestors came because they would be killed in eastern europe and they all fled and that and that they and they had to flee their homes to get to a new land as well so you look at me and you think i'm so different than you but i come from the exact same background right without going into too many de details as you can imagine and then i sat in a circle with our team and, and as you can imagine their eyes just popped out of their head right when they heard this they couldn't believe that somebody from another country could also be a ref had their family come from a refugee background and then you know we sat in a circle and i said imagine all of the uh imagine all of the uh things that we love in the world you know, our families, you know, color, thinking about what are the things that make us feel good, right? The things that make us feel like life is worth living. And, and imagine that that's an orb of light. Now that orb of light never stays the same. It's always changing and growing. And if you imagine that orb of light is constantly moving. And so we move our hands around in concentric circles. And when they said, as you think about this, look at what happens. It starts to speed up and it starts to speed up and it starts to grow and it starts to grow. What happens is that that light then spreads to the world. And every morning that you wake up, your job is to take that light. And even though there's darkness everywhere you look, is you are that source of light to your community. And if you focus on that, you can take people that are at the worst times in their life and you see them at their best. The arts bring out the best in people, no matter what they've been through. And I think that enduring resilience, that enduring and profound meaning that can come from creativity is the foundation of human of humanity you know and you see it in places where by all stretch of the imagination this shouldn't exist but actually it's the reverse arts need to be at the forefront of the crisis response and it needs to be a complementary program to what we think of when we think of humanitarian aid art needs to be there right alongside you know mental health psychological support um you know water sanitation hygiene art needs to be right there right alongside and and then one of the biggest reasons why is because it's what makes us people Right. Arts and culture are something that every culture has. And I think how to be able to embrace that and support that is a, is a really important question at this crossroads in history where we find ourselves. Well, and historically, in conflict, art has, whether it has to sneak out one page at a time or, you know, as you said, painted on a piece of trash or whatever it is, it will prevail. And we have countless books and paintings and poetry and song and, and all of that born of these great traumas completely it's you know and and, and i mean that's one thing that i i tell people and, and and although right now i'm focusing on the rohingya crisis although we do work globally one of the reasons is because of this fire that's happened that's just taken up a lot of our time because of the devastation there and you know i'll never forget the first time i went there you know you talk to people and the looks in their faces and the experiences they've had sound like somebody in 1945 who, who just left auschwitz like like that's what the stories feel like and it's not something of the past this is something that's happening right now right like now. 
as we speak. And I think so many times we think it's this very far off idea and you know, people may have not heard of the Rohingya crisis because it's this far away area that people have never heard of and that doesn't seem like it matters. But the reality is when you get to know these folks, they have, the, the, you know, the I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You know, there's one, one of our artists, his name is Ansar Ula, okay? He got an illegal SIM card Okay, when he was in Myanmar, and he would watch videos, and the videos he would watch were mostly Bollywood videos. By doing this, by in the hiding of his own home, he would watch Bollywood videos, and he taught himself how to break dance. Okay, and 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 he and he's this amazing dancer that when you're around him, he can just enliven an entire community the second he starts dancing. And we actually, his name is Ansar Ula, but we all call him Dansar Ula. Um, <laughs> and 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 he's such an amazing example that even somebody who, by all stretch of the imagination, is just trying to survive, takes the time to try to learn how to teach himself how to break dance in the hiding of his own home in Rakhine State, mm -hmm. and then he ends up getting into the camp, and now he's teaching dance with our with, with our teams. Right. So you look at this and you think, how is this even possible? possible, right? Somebody should just be concerned about living, let alone something like dance. Dance isn't necessary, but you realize, no, dance and painting and sculpture and music, it is necessary because it's what allows people to continue their day to day, right? It gives them a reason to wake up in the morning. You have to imagine that just because you have food, water, shelter, that doesn't mean that you have a high quality of life. It doesn't even mean that you have a quality of life, right? Many of these folks, they don't know about what's going to happen next, right? They don't know what's going to be, you know, if they're going to be able to get asylum or not. And they need water, food, shelter more than anything. And I agree completely with that. I would never deny that. But once they have that, it shouldn't be viewed that now they're finished. Now the job's done, right? That means the job has just begun. Right? We view ourselves to be what we call second responders, right? which means once their basic needs are met, we have to think not just about, um, and this is a quote actually directly from our artist. They said, we know that we need food in our belly, but what about food for our mind? What about food for our soul? Because that's because we need that just as much food for our belly, right? And these are people who are dealing with this trauma, who have experienced this, saying this to us. So when you think about that, you know, when you think about that concept, you have to kind of consider, okay, the reality is, is that whether we like it or not, we need to approach people holistically. We need to realize that that basic tenet of what we think of as humanitarian aid, it needs to change. We need to realize that creativity and, and, a, and, a, and a emotional fulfillment is, is, needs to be considered right alongside that physical well-being as well. If you could go back and, and tell yourself the, the day before you stepped into all of this, what do you think you would, what advice would you give that self? You know, I've thought a lot about that. Um, I've given a lot of thought to that. You know, what would I tell my younger self? Um, and there's a couple of things that I would probably say. Um, one that would be encouraging and one that might be a little bit more um, trying to give uh, some advice, let's say. So the, so, so, so the supporting thing to say is, you know, the only way you're going to shoot for the stars, the only way you're going to get to the stars is, is if you shoot to get there. Right. I, I don't know if I ever imagined that we would have scaled. It was first just me and then, you know, and then me and my partner, he, he, you know, we were doing this at the same time separately. And then we came together to do this work and we were kind of two nomadic artists doing around the world. Now over the span of the last you know, many years, we've scaled it. Now we have 80 artists all around the world who are doing this work. I would probably have said is, is that giant dream that you have, if you work every day, brick by brick, it's possible. You know, I had done, I actually bicycled from San Francisco to Rhode Island across America. And, you know, the thing is, is when, you, when you're starting off with your back, you know, back wheel in the San Francisco Bay, you're not saying, I got to get to Rhode Island. I got to get to the, you know, to the other coast. You're saying, I just need to get to the next town. 
you know, I just need to get to the next little mountain range. You know, I just need to get, I just need to get to, you know, to the top of that mountain. And once I get there, it's going to be okay. Then you get to that mountain, the top of the mountain, and you see way across in the distance, there's another mountain range. Okay. I just need to get to that mountain range. It's step by step, you know, and, 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 and I think that's, that's number one. Number two, uh, one of the biggest pieces of advice that I would probably give myself is the hardest part of the work that I do is funding. No question. Mm -hmm. Getting the funding to do this work is incredibly difficult. Um, and especially ongoing funding to pay our artists to do this. Fundraising is the most difficult part of what I do. Um, it's my, as you can imagine, I think for most people in NGOs, it's like you have that core orb of light, but you have to build an infrastructure and a scaffolding to make that light be able to live and be able to continue to survive. And so I'd say fundraising, I would probably give myself a warning ahead of time to learn as much as I could about fundraising um, and to learn as much as I could, as much as I, let's say it's not my favorite thing in the world to do but without that there's no way that can that our work can exist so i'd probably give myself a warning and say get yourself more ready to realize that out of every you know four opportunities that you might be offered only one of them will actually get funded and of that one you need to make a hundred percent of them successful because there's not there isn't a margin for error when you're working in this work because it's because the arts and the education are so underfunded um so i would definitely talk about funding which is by far the hardest part of the work that we do and then the last thing that i would definitely say which i think is is a really important part of the conversation is just being able to kind of recognize where do you stand in history? You know, I probably would have told myself, you're viewing this just as, as you know, that, you know, project by project, but to really take a step back and say, where, what is this a movement? What are we trying to change? Why are we trying to change it? For what purpose? Because now that I see the reality is, is we need to have shifts in the movements that are happening in the arts and education. And I believe what we're fighting for, this concept of community-based public art education is the next phase in the history of arts and education in crisis. And I, and I, and I truly believe that if I would have had that vision ahead of time and, and pitched it beforehand, maybe it would have been a, you know, a little bit more fluid of a transition. But I feel very lucky in many ways that um, you know, I have the opportunity and access. You know, to be honest, our, our artist Dildar or Muhammad Ibrahim or Samir, they're not on this call with you right now. Right? Your listeners don't necessarily get the opportunity to hear their stories. So I feel a responsibility to try to represent them as honestly and earnestly as humanly possible, because in the end, it's their stories that matter. You know, we have to be the conduits to being able to bring their stories to life. Yeah. Uh, so last week, you last week there was a great article in the New York Times about you and your work and the other artists involved with lovely images as well. And I'll put that article. I'll link it on HeyHumanPodcast.com. Um, Thank you. When you when you get something like that, which opens up the world to what you're doing. Um, do you do you see a big jump in help and people donating? That's one question. And the other question is, do you see it, um, the ripple, as you said, rippling out and having people say, you know what, these programs would also work here. There's plenty of poverty stricken, you know, heavy abuse riddled economic strife areas in the United States. So that's a twofold question. Um, yes. Yeah, so those are two, two very different questions, both of which, which have very important answers. Um, so maybe, maybe I'll start with your second question and then I'll move on to the first one, if you don't mind. Um, so we do do programs all across America for many years. Uh, we do a lot of work with resettled refugees. We work with people who've been through physical uh, and mental violence. We've done a lot of work um, with undocumented asylum seekers uh, from, from Latin America. We work with the LGBTQ community, those who have autism and special needs, rehabilitation programs. We're dealing with addictions. We've done many programs in New York, D.C., 
Colorado, LA, Chicago. Um, we've worked all across the states as well. So although I'm focusing largely on our work in the refugee communities, we do do extensive work across the states, and especially because we're based here, and there's a lot of need in this country as well. And we're very much, uh, you know, I acknowledge that. And we do have a, a, a program we call Virtual Bridges, where we connect communities around the world uh, to be able to learn from each other, where they're able to meet. So we all have kids from, you know, from Brooklyn who are then working with kids in Uganda who are South Sudanese refugees. You know, kids who are in California being able to work with uh, Venezuelan refugees in Colombia. You know, so we we've done a lot of these types of programs, and that is really important. Um, to answer your first question about the about the New York Times, it took uh, over a year to be able to get that article put together. It was an incredibly challenging process, and uh, I have a deep, deep, deep respect for the New York Times, and I'd highly recommend reading it. We have seen, you know, a rise in engagement, um, which is wonderful. Um, you know, the reality is, is it happened to to be in a very bizarre series of events where um, where where first and foremost, like we're dealing with the article, and then and then all of a sudden there's this massive travesty, this huge fire that happens at the same time, which is just devastating, right? This catastrophe. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out ways of being able to utilize this New York Times article to raise awareness about this crisis, and then utilize that with our with our emergency funding campaign to try to get donations um, for our artists and for their families. And so we're kind of in a time like right now, like today, and whenever people listen to this podcast, we're in dire and urgent need of donations. Um, it's not necessarily just for our general programs, but it's because we're dealing with this one very specific urgent response of people who already had their whole homes burned, and now they're being re-traumatized to have other, you know, the refugee camp completely burned. So, you know, it's been something that's been very difficult and we have seen some funds, but we need, we're in dire need of, of, of more donations. And I think those donations can both come from individuals, but also we found, you know, we work with a lot of companies and working with those corporate social responsibility groups. We work with um, Time for Change, which is the philanthropic branch of Gucci in the past we've worked with. We've also worked with other companies um, who are willing to kind of make those kinds of donations. But then additionally, you know, family foundations and philanthropies, being able to work with humanitarian organizations and being able to even work with schools, hospitals, um, you know, we've done a lot of work that ranges different disciplines. And maybe the, the biggest answer I can give is you need a diversified set of relationships, right? It can't be, you can't rely on any one thing. You need individual donors, you need group donors, you know, you need philanthropies. And the reality is, to be honest, is just, you know, this is not, COVID has made this an incredibly challenging time. It's been a very difficult time for, um, for all non-for-profits, especially in the arts and cultural sectors. It's been an incredibly challenging time for us. And somehow we've been able to continue to push through um, the being able to have these programs of, you know, ranging from having our artists actually making instructional manuals um, that are for, for non-literate caregivers to learn how to be able to work with children. Um, we've been able to have our artists making paintings on canvas from the safety of their own homes that are then bolted up to walls, teaching about um, safety of, of, um, of COVID, of wearing masks and social distancing and, and, and hand washing. We've worked with local imams to actually create, for example, a mural that was all about everybody bringing their own prayer mat during Ramadan um, to be able to make sure that they're not, you know, stopping the transmission of COVID. Um, we've done stop motion animations, being able to have uh, characters made of mud that then they are able to be um, animated to be able to tell their stories about, you know, not using uh, public transport unless it's an emergency, you know, these types of things. So we've come up with all these strategies, but the reality is, is, um, you know, we, we are in dire need of funding to continue this work happening. So it's it's been a challenge, but at the same time, it's been um, kind of really inspiring as well to see what is possible. How many people donate that are listening? Um, I, I, people may people can donate. They just go to artillution.org. 
Um, so it's, and just so you know the spelling, it's artolution, like an evolution or a solution or a revolution or an evolution, uh, artolution, so A-R-T-O-L-U-T-I-O-N.org. And so you can see, if you just go to donate, you'll go right to that page. Um, also, if you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, we're on all of those different handles and you can, and all of them have the link, especially to our emergency appeal right now, um, where people can donate and they can see exactly where their money's going to. Yeah. And I'll, again, I'll put links to all that stuff on Hey Human Podcast. So that it's all in one so place. And yeah, Thank and it's so easier much. for people. Yeah. Have you, this seems right up uh, David Rothschild's alley. Have you reached out to, to him? I have not. Um, if you happen to have any connections, I would love to be introduced. I, I don't have a personal connection. I follow him on Twitter, but this is absolutely something that I feel he would be immediately on board for so at the very least i'll send you information on his twitter <laughs> and maybe somebody you know knows him i don't know or somebody listening if anybody knows david rothschild and knows how to connect right well Max. also and, and and also if anyone's listening any any connection anybody you know, found, of course right there's a lot of people who this can and this is very important what we are looking to do is to further the missions of other organizations as well so we have our own mission but if let's say for example the red cross we work closely with right they have a mission to be able to improve the health of everyone in the world that's their goal right so for us in the context that we work we want to help them to improve their health by using the arts if we talk about you know protecting every child the mandated UNICEF. We are looking to, to help to protect every child through the arts. So we're using our methodology to help to promote other missions, which I think is important. And that is part of our mission, which I think is crucial. The other part is what we found is we're in this tech era, right? We're in this era where there's this open access to information. There's open access to being able to, um, you know, figure out ways of, of taking action. You know, what we found is some of our supporters who really want to take action, they don't even necessarily, if they don't have the ability to donate, you know, things like Facebook, for example, creating your own fundraiser on Facebook is very easy to do now. And we've had a lot of sources be able to do that to expand our networks. So even if somebody can only make a one or a five or $10 donation, it's something that means uh, so much to our teams. I cannot even describe, um, especially for their own livelihoods, right? Being able to provide for them and for their families to be able to survive is, is one of the most important mandates that we have, as well as transforming the lives of these children as well. So, so if anybody has any questions, you can also always reach out to us at info at artolution.org. Yeah, and one can be a lot. If and one can be a lot, right? If you change I one mean, world, you change the world. You know, if you change one life, you change the world. I mean, it's absolutely it's so true. And this is more of a philosophical question, but on that note, do you do you see the world getting smaller? I think for a lot of people, you know, they they think of genocide, and immediately the brain goes to a Hitler. Sure. And I think for a lot of people, they don't realize that there are little mini Hitlers running around all over the place, wiping out humans by the millions without any regard because they are they practice a different religion. They look a little different. They think differently or whatever it is. Um, do you see any shifts yet? Or do you think that is uh, more of a long haul thing? <laughs> So I, I have a little bit of a strange perspective, um, to be honest with you, and, I, and, 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 I'll, and I'll preface it by saying that I have a strange perspective because my answer may not be what you expect, um, is that to me, to be perfectly honest, I do not believe that world peace is possible. I do not believe that that will happen in our lifetimes or maybe ever. What I believe is that we need to work with communities to be prepared for when trauma will happen. 
right? So trauma will has happened, is happening, and will continue to happen. And trauma will continue to happen. It will not stop, no matter how hard we try to work at this. What we need to do is we need to work with communities so they can be prepared to have resilient responses when a, when a massive trauma happens. And I'm not just talking about human-made traumas. I'm talking about environmental traumas as well. Right. So we're do, if we look at global warming and the connection to the global migration crisis, if we look at 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 the the, the many layers of of traumas that have happened, I don't know if, if if these are going to be getting better. What I think can be getting better, and what I am seeing getting getting better, is more effective responses, so that when trauma hits, we are prepared to respond. And and I think that's that's something that's really important. So, for example, our artists who who especially, and I'm going to continue to focus on the Rohingya camps because of this fire as an example. We worked for three years since the influx in 2017 to train them how to be able to make social change within their communities. So now, when we have a massive, massive travesty happen like this fire, they're ready and they say, "What can we do?" We are ready. We we want to help our own community, right? They're in that mentality. They have those feelings. So the question is, is as we see things like a genocide happen, of course we want to prevent it. Of course we don't want it to happen in the first place, and we need to work on that on, on that across the board. That has to happen through policy. That has to happen, you know, on on, on large um, multilateral uh, kinds of modalities. But realistically, a lot of people feel like 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 what can I do about that? Right. You know, how is that even possible for me? It's giant governments. It's these huge bodies. You know, how can we how can we do this? And the reality is, is we need to sometimes think a little bit more locally and then be able to think about how that can extrapolate globally. So I say that because, you know, in the dream world, there will be no more wars. So there will not be more genocides. But we've seen that has never happened in history. And I've yet to believe that that will ever happen in history. But what we need to do is we need to have a peace building mentality, not that we will ever maybe get to full world peace, but that we need to develop resilient responses so that when these traumas happen, people are prepared to be able to deal with it in a way that can really hopefully prevent this from happening again. Or if it does happen again, that we can heal as fast as we can. Right. And I think that's really important because as you can imagine, I'm sure many people have a lot of frustrations. If you look at how much money, for example, goes into the military compared to how much money goes into education. Right. We, we can look at direct numbers. If you, know, if you can imagine out of all of the money that goes to humanitarian aid, less than 3% goes to education, right? As you're dealing with extremely small numbers comparatively. And yet one of the first things that most refugees ask when they get to a new to, 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 to their new refugee camp is, will my children get educated? Will they be able to make a better life than I have had? That's one of the number one questions that people ask. You know, what's going to happen to my children and how are they going to make a better life than, than I've had? And the only answer to change that is to say, we need to figure out resilient responses and durable responses to these types of traumas. So I know that sounds like it might be a little bit um, depressing, but the reality is, is I think we have to be realistic. And for those who've been in these zones and have worked in these traumas, you also realize there is room for hope in the most dark places you can find that one light. And you had mentioned Hitler, right? I think there's a really powerful example of this is for, for anyone who's ever been to the Holocaust Museum in Israel called Yad Vashem, it's a very powerful image where at the end of this museum where you've seen, you know, horrific images of, of the concentration camps and, you know, it's very, it's very difficult to go there. At the very end, you go into a pitch black room and there's one candle right in the center of the room and you walk in and there's thousands of mirrors. And as you look, it's, it looks like there's thousands and thousands of candles when really there's only one little candle right in the center. So if we imagine that as the hope that can come from a horrific trauma, that is what, what these teaching artists can be, right? That at its best, that's what the arts can do is to be that one candle that's reflected across the world.
Amen to that. <laughs> Max, thank you. Artolution.org, everyone, please check it out. Uh, thank, thank you for being on the planet, Max. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Susan. It's such an honor to talk to you. And, you know, for me, I think we have to figure out ways to make ourselves feel. You know, emotion is so important because I think we can get so disconnected from these crises around the world and they can just be, oh, there's another thousand people or another million people. Oh, you know, the world's falling apart. But there is so much that we can do. There is so much we can do. And for those of us who are in the quote unquote developed world or in the Western world, you know, you realize we have such access to education, to water, to food, to sanitation. You know, we have, we have all of our needs met. And the question is, is how can we build bridges? You know, how can we build to be those bridge builders? And the, and the reality is, is there's so many amazing ways that we can do that, that if we can find more ways to do that every day, um, you know, I think it's our turn to repair the world, you know, maybe now. Absolutely. And the candle is a perfect analogy and that one can be a lot. And I think we do forget, but sometimes what starts out as a smile or a hand or a dollar or a, a moment of teaching a kid about drawing or writing or arithmetic, a hug for that matter. Right. A consensual hug, right. I might or, add. Or, or even just simple <laughs> eye contact, right? Well, well, eye like, contact, simple eye yeah. contact, right? Like just being acknowledged, be acknowledged that they exist. Right. Yeah. Like I like I remember maybe maybe I'll, I'll end with a quick story, if you don't mind. And I think it'll kind of um, maybe epitomize everything we're talking about. Um, I was doing a program right at right at the beginning of the influx, right when people were fleeing the genocide. It was super urgent in, in, in Bangladesh. Um, and 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 I remember I was working with this one little boy and he was in such a state of shock that he couldn't even hold a paintbrush. He did not have the strength to actually put a paintbrush in his hand and hold it. So it took days of working with this boy until he un, until he was able to hold it and you have to imagine that 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 there's there's you know a lot of times the beginning of trauma people may may have emotional reactions but it can get to the point where actually children are numb where they actually have no facial expression they're completely non-reactive um you know they basically shut down and this boy was in that kind of a state of shock and you have to imagine he was less than four years old he was he was a little boy and finally I, you know I, you know of being able to make it uh to, finally we were able to have him hold this paintbrush and he started to make small little uh yellow polka dots on it uh on the mural we were looking at and and you have to imagine this boy was also um didn't have clothes he was naked he was covered in mud you know you have to imagine these kinds of images and i was looking and i was standing behind him watching him look and i saw he had a huge gash on the top of his head and he was bleeding and i realized that nobody had taken care of this little boy so you know we went and we grabbed you know grabbed our, our first aid kit and we you know bandaged up his head and 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 what was crazy is as i was kind of like like you know kind of uh, cleaning off the, the the blood and everything there was zero emotion no pain no crying um you know it was just this incredibly difficult level of shock and after we bandaged him up and he kind of finished making his paintings you know after days of working with him no facial expressions no reaction of any kind after having been to the shock he, he, he I, I gave him a sticker and it was a sticker of actually a little Syrian girl holding up her hands with a huge smile and he kind of took he kind of took it and he slowly started to walk away and he turns around and he had a huge smile on his face the first smile that he actually had after after uh, fleeing the genocide and coming into into Bangladesh and we think about that one little story right that one boy's smile and that is the reason why what we are doing and i believe that what the arts can do is it's transcendent Right. It's 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 profound and it's beyond anything that I could imagine where you say something as one, you know, one little boy smile. It sounds like it should be you know, like nothing, but it's the world. It means the world to that boy. 
right? And so, and so we look at this and we have to kind of consider that something that might seem as simple as making a single brush, you know, a single stroke across a, a, a canvas with a paintbrush actually means far more than sometimes we can ever imagine. Absolutely. Max, thank you. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you for listening and please be in contact. And um, yeah, just a total honor to talk to you, Susan. Um, thank you so much for hosting this. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.